You're listening to a sermon from Covenant Presbyterian Church in Cochrane, Alberta. If you'd like more information about our church, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.covenantpresbyterian.ca. Welcome. Glad you're here. Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? We are in John chapter 6. We are finishing the chapter today, believe it or not. John 6, verses 47 to 59. This is the word of the Lord. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So the Jews disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise up him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Last time we were in John, Jesus, once again, was saying some hard things. He called himself the bread of life, an assertion that got the attention of the Jews, especially those of the scribes and Pharisees. He claimed that he came from heaven, that he was the Son of Man, a reference to the Messiah in Daniel 7. He mentioned the fact that anyone who believes in him will have eternal life, that he would raise all believers on the last day, something that, of course, only God can do. As we saw Jesus, or sorry, as we saw the Jews grumbled. They grumbled amongst themselves. They were having a very, very difficult time with what Jesus was saying. And instead of smoothing over the situation, you know, to keep the peace, Jesus instead gave them a theology lesson, if you'll recall. Why are you grumbling? Don't you know that the reason you're having such a hard time of all this is because of your unbelief? Right? Don't you understand that you don't believe because in order to believe, my Father must compel you to believe? What was the insinuation? 
that they were not the children of God, that they were lost, that their Jewishness wasn't going to save them. And that unless they came to Jesus, that unless they believed upon him, they are not of the Father. I tried to emphasize last time that doctrine matters. That the person and work of Jesus Christ was vital and is vital to our proper understanding of worship, to the gospel, to our faith. You cannot get Jesus wrong and be saved. It's not possible. As we look through the text this week, we see that Jesus makes a specific link to the Passover lamb and predicts his own death in a metaphorical way, something the Jews would have understood, which of course made the situation even more untenable. This week's sermon is titled, if you care, Feeding on the Lamb feeding on the lamb. So verses 47 and 48 start as such. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. It is the truth. It is the truth, I say to you. We sometimes lose the importance of this simple statement. So it's important to review it from time to time. Anytime you see a word repeated, in this case, amen, amen, which is translated truly, truly, <clears throat> it means to emphasize it. It means it, it's, it's the, the Hebrew way of putting a great big exclamation mark there. This is a great big emphatic pay attention, right? And in this case, we have another statement where Jesus is declaring truth. What he's about to tell us is truth. Not my truth. Not your truth. But the truth. The one and only truth. This is a statement that is objectively true. Not subjective opinion. This is true whether you and I or anyone else believes it. The whole world can deny it. It doesn't matter. It's still true. Jesus tells those who believed in him in John 8, when we get there, that knowing the truth will set you free. We'll dive more into that when we get there, but it's important to know that when Jesus speaks, what is said is true. And that which is true is good. And if we heed what Jesus says, if we take into our hearts and minds the truth, the truths that the Bible speaks, we will be wise in the ways of the Lord. And we will have peace like we've never understood peace before. So what is it that Jesus claims is true, what we call true truth? What does Jesus claim is true truth here? That any person who believes has eternal life. Did you notice the tense of the verb? It's not will have. It's not had. It is has. The word is what is called a present active indicative. 
Anyone who believes possesses now, right now, with certainty, something not visible or obvious. Whoever believes upon Jesus has, right now, eternal life. How long is eternal, you might ask? Another way of saying it is forever. There is no end. How does the hymn go? Amazing grace. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we'd first begun. See, we have a hard time wrapping our minds around time. We have 10,000 years. Can you wrap your mind around 10,000 years? Right? It's hard. Never mind the, the concept of eternity. But that's the promise, isn't it? Believe upon Jesus, come to Him, and you will have eternal life. You can bet on it. It's a sure thing. Take it to the bank. Come, believe, and you have now eternal life. You could get hit by a truck on your way home today and rest assured you will be with Christ in the blinking of an eye. Isn't that assuring? And it can happen. I was informed this week that a, uh, a former co-worker of mine who, who uh, is in his mid-50s, he just retired. He's out on the coast on a boat. And uh, I don't know how fast they were going, but the boat hit rocks. His son on that same boat, aged in his 20s, young guy. Of course, you're not strapped down in a boat. Hit inside the boat. And my former colleague sat there and gave his son CPR, who died. It's terrible. But it happens. No one here is guaranteed 80 years. Nobody is. None of us are guaranteed anything except you're going to die. You don't know when. So the idea is, get right with God. There's an old story. I forget who it was exactly, but he's praying. He's got a prayer closet. And he's on his knees, and he was known as a man of prayer, and he's in his prayer closet, he's praying, and he died while praying. And the joke, which isn't a joke, it was reassuring, is the idea that that man got up off his knees in the presence of Jesus. Probably didn't even know he died. Oh, what am I doing here? Oh, hello. You know? But rest assured that if you're in Christ... You have eternal life. Death doesn't scare us. What does Paul say? To live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. Seems like a good thing. Not that I want to rush out and get hit by a truck today. However, the idea, the very concept of dying is not something that should scare us. Right? We know where we're going. It should give you a sense of peace. It does me. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Yes. Yes, he is. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. 
This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die, verses 49-50. If you will recall, it was the Jews who brought up the manna from heaven back in verses 30-33. to It was them that brought it up. Essentially, they were asking for Jesus to give them a sign to back up his claims. What's hilarious is that what, what just happened? They were there for it. Jesus fed the 5,000. And now they're talking about manna from heaven? And they want a sign? It's a joke. Apparently because the loaves and fishes didn't fall from heaven, it was deemed inconclusive. Not good enough. Jesus here brings up the matter again. But now he's using it as a contrast from the manna in the wilderness. If you may recall, the Jews were, where were they? They were wandering in the desert. And they're hungry. And as usual, they're whining about it. God sends manna from heaven to feed his people. And they lived for a while. Jesus here reminds his audience that yes, the manna did come from heaven. That was bread from heaven, for sure. But there's a major difference between that bread and the bread that Jesus is talking about. Your fathers ate the manna from heaven. That is true. Good point, Mr. Pharisee. But what happened to them? They all died. Irrefutable, yes? Show me one of the fathers that didn't die. You can't. They all perished. So the Father gave them bread for their physical needs so they could sustain their natural lives for a while. But in the end, Mr. Pharisee, they all died. Right? That's not the kind of bread I'm talking about, Jesus says. Jesus was not talking about being bread that sustains you in this life. But for what? Life everlasting. He says, this bread... What is this referring to again? Oh yeah, I am the bread of life. This bread, me, Jesus. This bread that comes down from heaven, me, Jesus, is the bread that you must eat. And eat of this bread and you will not die. Not like the manna from heaven. There's a major difference. If you eat of this bread, meaning that you are receiving Jesus by faith, he's made this clear numerous times. This is now three times that any time he's talking about eating, and he's going to make the situation worse here shortly when he's talking about drinking his blood, he's talking about faith. It is faith in Christ that he's talking about. Faith in Christ and you are assured eternal life. And then Jesus finishes off with the following. I am the bread, sorry, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Verse 51. Remember what was said about the uh, repetition in the ancient days? I just said it. Amen, amen, truly, truly. Emphasize, exclamation mark. Here Jesus is repeating himself again regarding being the living bread that came down from heaven. When you read this and you study it, it feels like Jesus is flogging a dead horse. Right? Like how many times does he have to repeat this? But here he adds an important detail. The bread isn't just Jesus. 
but his flesh. Some think John is referring to or conjuring up for us the Lord's Supper. I don't think that's the case, but it will definitely by the end make us very cognizant of the Lord's Supper. He's, the Lord's Supper, when we do it from 1 Corinthians, right? This is my what? This is my flesh? No, he says, this is my body. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Many other places in Scripture where the Lord's Supper is mentioned uses the term body. In the Greek, it's soma, right? Here, John uses the term flesh, which is sarx. And some might want to think that sarx is just kind of a primitive term. It's kind of yucky, flesh, fleshy. But I think... I don't think that's the case, especially when we consider back to chapter 1 and verse 14, right? God took on flesh and he dwelt among us. He's, he's referring back to, he's reminding us about Jesus' flesh, right? As the word became flesh and dwelt among us, Jesus was able to give himself to us. This is the important part. Jesus was able to give himself to us, how? By becoming one of us, Right? Leaving the glory of the presence of the Father and Spirit from all eternity, Jesus, via the power of the Holy Spirit, becomes man. Jesus condescends. We must understand that God becoming flesh is a serious condescension. Think about Jesus in his glory with the Father and the Holy Spirit, condescends, takes on flesh, and dwells, dwells, dwells among us. There we go. And as a man, the God-man, to be more precise, Jesus was able to give himself. This is the sort of, uh, th this is sort of the beginning of the sacrificial language that John uses from this point on throughout his gospel. The bread, which is his flesh, is given for the life of the world. We see in John 10, Jesus lays down his life for the sheep. In John 11, Jesus will die for the nation and for the children of God scattered abroad. John 15, Jesus lays down his life for his friends. John 17, it's for their sakes, meaning the, the, the disciples, that Jesus consecrates himself. John 18, that one man should die for the people. All of these references speak in sacrificial language. The Lamb of God must die in order for us to feed upon Him. And notice this. Jesus is the one who gives His flesh. Jesus is the one who gives His flesh. This is voluntary. No one is forcing Jesus to lay down His life. He went to the cross and He died for us. And he did so willingly. There's an expression that is used in apologetics regarding the question, why do bad things happen to good people? And I'm sure all of you scholars in here already know the answer. That only happened once. And he volunteered. Right? Hebrews chapter 9, verse 13 14. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctified for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience 
from dead works to serve the living God. Obviously, if Jesus is giving his flesh for the life of the world, this means that it is a vicarious sacrifice. You and I receive that which we could never earn because Jesus received that which we rightly deceived, that we rightly deserved. You and I will never truly know the wrath of God because Jesus found that out for us. Jesus took on the wrath of God. <clears throat> In verse 45, John quoted Isaiah 54, and here, if we, if we put our minds to it and we know our Bibles, we'll also know that the suffering servant was Isaiah 52 and 53. Right? I don't think that's... I don't think that's by accident. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Heavy and wonderful stuff. So what was the reaction? I'm sure you could guess. The Jews then disputed among themselves saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat, verse 52. In our ESVs, if you've got the ESV, in our ESVs we have the word disputed there. And that while it's not necessarily incorrect, it is what I would call a rather weak translation of the word, considering the circumstances. The Greek word here is used, that is used is uh, makomai, which is often used when discussing a physical altercation in sort of a military sense. I kind of picture a bar fight, personally. Right? This is a fight. It's a quarrel. A severe argument, if you may. Now, what was the fight about? How can this man give us his flesh to eat? That's quite the conundrum that they were arguing about. In one of the commentaries I was using for the study this week, it, it was kind of funny, it said, any dullard could see that Jesus was not speaking literally. No one would suppose Jesus was seriously advocating cannibalism and offering himself as the first meal. I had a good chuckle over this for a number of reasons. First of all, on the fire ground we have an expression, uh, I, ha I am a full-time firefighter, I am a career firefighter, and the only reason why I have a career is because of stupid people, right? The idea that any dullard could understand that he was speaking not literally is kind of laughable, especially when we look at, I, I just thought, this guy doesn't get out much, stuck in his ivory tower, right? One of the accusations against the early church was what? cannibalism they're eating flesh and drinking blood right they're worse than dullards apparently 
Also, this should remind us of other conversations that Jesus has had in which he's speaking spiritually, and the audience is thinking in terms of the physical. Nicodemus wasn't a dumb guy. And yet, what was his reaction? You remember? I have to crawl back into my mother's womb? Seems weird. Right? It's absurd, yet that's exactly where Nicodemus goes. And, of course, it's now written down for us to study for all eternity. I hope I see Nicodemus one day. Crawl back in your mother, eh? That's pretty funny. The idea that the Jews pondered the possibility of Jesus speaking of cannibalism, I would argue, isn't necessarily out of the question. Now, John here doesn't elaborate on all the intricate details of the argument, but clearly we can boil it down to what the major issue was. And it basically boils down to, I wonder what Jesus is talking about. I don't get it. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? It's a preposterous statement, right? It's preposterous. It can be taken literally, which would lead you to cannibalism, right? Or it can be taken figuratively. But even if it's taken figuratively, what's the figure? Jesus, feeling sorry for them, of course, as he's prone to do, clarifies what he's talking about. He's just going to clear up this whole mess, right? Here, let me try again, right? And then he drops this. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and, and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, verses 53 and 54. So, huh, that should clear things up. That's better. Jesus repeats himself, but this time he adds a little something more in. And it's not a little something. I can imagine Jesus standing there, actually, before, before he lets loose of this. He's watching this whole situation un unfold. And he, I don't know if he's watching a fist fight or... I mean, he's watching a screaming match anyway uh, over what he's talking about. And there's fighting and there's bickering and they're getting frustrated with one another. And, and, and Jesus standing there. Is, is Jesus... See, lots of times the, the text focuses in on one aspect, but for me, I, I like to turn around and look at who's watching. I'm looking at Jesus going, is he shaking his head? What's he doing? Shaking his head. Is he like, head in his hand, scratching, like, ugh. I want to know, does he have a mischievous grin on his face? Does he know what he's doing? Having a good time? Is he doing this on purpose? Jesus throws them a bone here by adding some important details. First detail is that uh, the one being eaten has a title. And that title is the Son of Man. The one on whom God has set his seal. If you remember back to verse 27, he set his seal upon him. Jesus is the one in whom God the Father is revealed and therefore is different than all those that came before him. Unlike any other... In order to gain eternal life, Jesus alone is the one in whom you must eat. Second, Jesus adds in the caveat that you must drink his blood. Jesus, by adding this, didn't just poke the hornet's nest. He kind of took out a Louisville slugger and he hit it out of the park. 
right? The law of Moses forbid the drinking of blood. Jews weren't even allowed to eat meat with blood still in it. They weren't allowed to have a medium rare steak. So when Jesus adds this to his claim, the Jews weren't just a little upset. They found it abhorrent. I can't find a stronger, uh, a stronger word, to be totally honest. Abhorrent, disgusting, abominable, loathing, repugnant, hate. Jesus just took this whole thing to a new level. But it is accurate. From a biblical perspective, the symbolic reference to blood in the Bible is not of life but is of death. And not just any death, but death via violence and sacrifice. Think of all the sacrifices that take place in the temple. The amount of blood that is spilt. The blood that is sprinkled on the altar. Jesus is pointing to himself as being the ultimate sacrifice. It will be his body broken. It will be his blood that is spilt. It is this lesson that Jesus is setting up for us regarding the Lord's Supper. Thirdly, remember the importance of the word unless. It's a word that expresses a necessary condition that if not accomplished or filled, the outcome will not be met. Jesus here includes the importance of not only eating his flesh, but also of drinking his blood. You have no life apart from him. And the only way in which to receive life is to partake of the body and blood of Christ. So in this regard, the Jews were right in trying to figure out what Jesus meant by this. And we should also take it seriously. If we have any interest in the life that Jesus is talking about, namely eternal life, then that word unless should grab our attention. Jesus moves from a condition and a negative statement to reiterating once again the positive. If you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you have eternal life. And because you have eternal life, you will be raised on the last day. Lastly, Jesus here is not in any way promising eternal life in a physical sense. He's not making promises to the Jews or anyone else for that matter that if they feed on him, they will never die. I have bad news for you. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. So when you put those two things together, all have sinned, the wages of, of sin is death, therefore all will die. But the great news is that if you have faith in Christ, you will have eternal life, meaning you will be raised from the dead. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever eats, or sorry, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Verses 55 and 56. There is a danger of taking Jesus' statements regarding his body and blood as being strictly metaphorical. Don't misunderstand. He is speaking metaphorically, but we don't want to take this meaning to any sort of extreme. His body is true food. His blood is true drink. When we eat and drink in a natural sense, our bodies are what? They are provided with nourishment that is used to not only keep us alive and healthy, but we are able to carry out our earthly works and duties. 
Likewise, when we feed upon Christ, when we drink Him in, when we feed upon Him, we are feeding our spirit. We're not just material beings. We're not just meat bags, right? We're also spiritual beings. The atheistic materialists deny the spirit. They feed and drink to their body's health, but they deny the existence of the non-material. And because they do so, they're not living. They don't understand the life that you and I as believers have. They don't understand. And maybe you remember back to what, before you were a believer. Totally different life now, isn't it? Totally different life. In a real sense, those outside the faith are dead. They are dead in their trespasses and sins. Others, like the Gnostics, accepted the fact that there is a physical side to life, but they hated it. They pursued that which was spiritual and hated the physical. As Christians, we have the correct understanding that the body is made up of the physical and the spiritual. We need to feed on both. And those that feed on Christ are getting the true food and the true drink for their spirit. We also have here in these verses the introduction of the idea of abiding. Now John's going to expand on this in much greater detail in chapter 15. But for now, we see Jesus speaking of this abiding in terms of feeding and drinking of himself. Now what does Jesus mean when he uses the term abiding? The Greek term meno means to remain, to stay or to lodge with. In order to understand the importance of this term, especially with regards to how Jesus here is using it, it's helpful to see where else it's been used. We see the term used with regards to the relationship, and this is the important part. If we really want to understand the abiding in Christ and Christ abiding in us, we need to look and see where else it's used. And when it's used in terms of the Godhead, that should blow your mind. At least it did me. Chapter 1, the relationship between Jesus and the Father. They abided in one another in chapter 14 and again in chapter 15. And if we have a, a true understanding of the Trinity, we have an understanding of the relationship between the three persons of the Godhead and as they are, what? They are abiding in one another. And then Jesus amazingly declares that those who eat his flesh and drink of his blood abide in him and more importantly, he abides in us. It should bring us to our knees. Christian, we are adopted brothers and sisters in Christ. We have the Spirit abiding in us. This is amazing. We have a relationship to God through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit that really surpasses all understanding. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. John chapter 8 verse 31. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. John 15 and verse 4. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept the Father's commandments and abide in his love. John 15, 9, 10. Amazing! 
Jesus is talking about us abiding in him the same way that he abides with the Father. This is the power of the Spirit. This is the real this is what makes Christianity real. By abiding in Jesus, you identify with him. And as you can see from the last verse, you show your identity in Christ by what? By keeping his commandments, just as Jesus kept the commandments of the Father. When we are called to love one another, this is what that's talking about. You show your abiding in Christ through the love you have for one another. We treat one another poorly. We think poorly about one another. We're demonstrating that maybe we're not there yet. Or at least we're showing what a poor example we are. We are forgetting that as God the Spirit is abiding in us, we are to show that. That is the fruit. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Verse 57. One of God's attributes is that of a saity, meaning a mode of being that is not derived from anything else. God is self-existent. When atheists ask Christians, oh yeah, where did God come from? And they think they've got gotcha. you. God is not an alien spaceship that has to have come from somewhere, right? Christian, your answer should always be, he didn't come from anywhere. He is self-existent. He created time and space. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is eternal. He is being. His name is Yahweh. I am who I am. R.C. Sproul is famous for saying we're known as human beings. He said, that's wrong. We're not human beings. We change. We are human becomings. We're becoming something else. Each and every day we become something else. God is the only true being there is. Unchanging. The living Father who has life in himself, the living Father who has life in himself sent Jesus, who also has life in himself. This is why those who feed on Jesus will live. Not because of anything we've done, not because of who we are, but because of who Jesus is. When you feed upon the eternal, you have eternal life. Jesus is, in a sense, the tree of life. You cannot have life apart from him. Jesus ends the dialogue similarly to how it started. This is the bread of life, that, or sorry, this is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Verse 58. Similarly to how Jesus finished the last round of statements when he started and ended with, I am the bread of life, right? Here he does the same thing. He started with, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. Here he ends the conversation with the same line. The Jews wanted to use the manna from heaven to assess Jesus' claims. 
Jesus uses that to establish his claims to show how he is much better and much greater than the manna from heaven and ends the conversation with the same line. If you want to continue eating the Old Testament manna from the law of Moses, you go right ahead. Die in the law. That's what that means. Die in the law. But you eat of me, you drink of me, and you will have eternal life. So in conclusion, I can tell I've been going on a while because kids are starting to go squirrely. We can and often do look at the Jews, more specifically the scribes and Pharisees, and think down upon, at least I do, I read them and think, what idiots? And then I remember, oh yeah, fellow idiot, right? If we look more carefully, you will find that we are the scribes and we are the Pharisees. What's the difference? Here's the stark contrast. Here's the difference. The scribes and Pharisees knew their Bible way better than you and I do. I'll speak for me. They knew it better than I do. I don't want to speak for you. But they knew their Bible way better than I do. The scribes and Pharisees were proud. The scribes and Pharisees were obstinate. They were quick to judge. They looked down their noses at others. They too claimed that if, remember this? They too claimed that if they were their forefathers, they would never have killed the prophets of God. They were way smarter than that. They were better. They were better than their forefathers. The very people that put Jesus on a cross, right? Isn't that how we look at them? If I was there back then, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have been so arrogant. I'd have believed... I'd have been Jesus' first disciple. Unlike Peter, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have left him. I wouldn't have done it, right? Chances are far more likely that I would have been the one yelling, crucify him. As I've mentioned before, it's easy for us to keep our theology and our Bible study shallow. We can claim things like Jesus is Lord, but do we have the foggiest clue of what that means? Do we have the foggiest clue of what that entails? Do we know what Jesus is talking about when he says things like, abide in me or feed on me? All too often we think we have this Christianity stuff figured out, but our lives all too often scream that we don't have the foggiest clue. Is it because we presume upon God's favor and grace? We can read Jesus saying some really hard things to the Jews regarding who he is and what is required for eternal life. And we sit back and think, oh, those Pharisees, why don't they get it? How often I prepare for the sermon on Sunday and I'm just blown away by what it is I'm reading and studying. And this was another example today. Jesus is the bread of life. If you want eternal life, you must feed upon Him. You must drink His blood. And in doing so, you are abiding in Him and Him in us. God, God abiding in us, you and me, sounds unbelievable. It sounds unbelievable. But Jesus tells us time and again, truly, truly, I say to you, 
It is true. Now the question is, are we being obedient to our calling? Are we abiding in Him? Are we feeding upon Him? Are we loving like Him? This might sound like a bit of a guilt trip, and I don't mean it to, honestly. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get across that as believers, we have the unparalleled privilege of being children of God. And as a child of God, are you thriving through feeding upon Christ? Or perchance, are you starving to death? All too often I see Christians, and maybe I'll include myself in this, from time to time, we hurt ourselves. We hurt ourselves by starving ourselves. We starve ourselves by not being in the Word of God. Saints, do you know how crazy that is? Do you know how absolutely crazy that is? It's like a starving person sitting at a free buffet. And not just any old crappy Chinese buffet. I'm, I'm talking a nice buffet. The finest, the finest of meals. Right? And then sitting back complaining that we're hungry. It's insane. We have Christ through His Spirit abiding in us. The Jews had Jesus standing right in front of them and missed it. We have the Spirit of God abiding in us, and we too, all too often, we're starving to death spiritually. Don't miss it. Don't miss it, saint. Come and feed upon Christ. He invites you. Be full. Be full. Be content. Because you're not going to find content, contentment anywhere but in Him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You so very much for Jesus. We're, we're so uh, thankful for the bread of life that You have sent down that we may, uh, via Your Word, through prayer, we can feed upon Jesus Christ and, uh, and feed our souls and, uh, and, and the, the benefits that we receive, Lord. The benefits that we receive from feeding upon your word through study and prayer is, is unfathomable. And why we starve ourselves from time to time is, is uh, via our own sin, our own willful stupidity. Lord, I pray that you would give us all conviction that every day we would make your son a priority in our lives and that we, in turn, would show that to a lost and dying world who is, in fact, starving to death through a lack of you, through a lack of not knowing your son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.